You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole. I do hope that uh, you have gotten the opportunity to order something special from Ruby because I think tonight is going to be a lot of fun. Um, one, I have a great guest with me and we're going to be continuing the Craig retrospective for Bond as we talk about Quantum of Solace. Now, Ruby has been trying to tell me what she thinks that title means. I know what Michael G. Wilson thinks the title means, but uh, I'm not sure fans necessarily knew what that title meant. Uh, And maybe that's something that we'll get into. But before we get into the show, just wanted to remind you that Trek FM is the network that you're on. That's the network that the 602 Club is hosted by. We love being here. This is a fantastic network with over 20 different shows and feeds all about our favorite thing, Star Trek. And we have every aspect of Star Trek covered from the different aspects of shows to behind the scenes to every single Star Trek show to different opinions. I mean, it's endless what we've got and books and comics, too. So check out iTunes.com slash Trek FM. You can also find us online, Trek.FM. Be sure to check us out. And of course, uh, if you're in iTunes, make sure you do give the 602 Club a nice five-star written review, and right now, for the next week or so, you'll still be able to be entered into our drawing. We're going to pick a person at random who's given us a written review there on iTunes coming in October, and we want to be able to give you, for doing that, just for writing a review and giving us a star rating, we want to give you a $50 gift card to Amazon as well as a USS Vengeance from Eagle Moss. So I'm really excited to do that. So check us out, like I said, at iTunes.com slash TrekFM, online at Trek.FM. And then, of course, we're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. And you can find us on Twitter at TrekFM. Great places to follow us and check us out. Well, want to dive right into the movie. But before we do that, John Champion, it is great to have you back in the 602 Club and here to talk some more James Bond. I'm so glad to be here. Man, I, you know, if there's among the many great uh, benefits of doing Mission Log, it's that now I get to go be a guest on shows to talk about things other than Star Trek. <laughs> you know, I've yeah. talked about James <laughs> Bond, I've talked about Batman, Man from Uncle, just a lot of stuff. So I'm, I'm always glad to be here. I love doing the 602 Club. And um, what a what a cool thing to do to be able to talk about the Craig Bond films leading up to the release of Spectre. As of this recording, and by the time the recording comes out, Sam Smith's song will actually have been released because that's coming out on Friday, and we're recording this on a Tuesday. I heard he posted on Instagram just a snippet, like 15 seconds of the song. And it already sounds classic. So, yeah, it's we're getting towards Spectre, just getting the chills, nice. you know? Nice. So, Had no very idea. excited about that. Okay. Well, John, Quantum of Solace, 
unfortunately had to follow Casino Royale. Yeah. And, you know, we talked at length. <laughs> oh, yeah. We talked about the show, just how good Casino Royale is. And, and you know, can be argued to be the best Bond movie that's ever been. And it's a legitimate argument, even when you're throwing Skyfall into the mix. Sure. Now, I still would argue that Under Majesty's Secret Service, but that's a completely different <laughs> argument for another show. Different show. Exactly. Yeah. Different show. Yeah. Get on track, Matt. Uh, <laughs> this Bond movie, not only was it falling Casino Royale, but there's some very interesting things that happened behind the scenes to make it the Bond movie that it became. Yeah. Um, so you had a writer's strike. And that doesn't help anybody. All you have to do is look at season two of The Next Generation to know, yeah. <laughs> to know that a writer's strike doesn't Shades help. of gray, anyone? Right. <laughs> so um, you have a problem there. And I feel like the Bond films, um, it, there's nothing else like this franchise. It's going on for more than 20 films over a 50-year period. And you have regime changes, you have studio changes, you have actor changes, and the pendulum kind of always swings back and forth. So you can have a streak of some great movies and maybe some popular but not so great movies. And then it's sort of like they have to find their way again. And usually when you get a new actor in there, they they give it some fresh blood. So... Yeah. When you had Roger Moore transition into Timothy Dalton, well, it was going to be Pierce Brosnan, but then you had another writer's issue, and we didn't know exactly what script was going to be written for what actor, but at least you had a new actor kind of bring new life into it. Then you had Pierce Brosnan come along, and, and he gets to breathe new life into something that already after two movies, you felt like Bond didn't quite know what it was anymore. And now yeah. we do that again, where they totally reinvent Bond with uh, Casino Royale. And by reinvent, I mean, well, okay, maybe going back to the drawing board and back to the basics was the way to do that. But how do you follow that up? How do you follow up a movie that is so beloved and seems to seems to do the right thing by straddling with one foot in the modern era and one foot in this era where this character came from, this cold, Cold War relic, <laughs> as the, the word has yeah. been used many <laughs> times, you know. And what do you do with that guy? Misogynistic dinosaur, yeah, right. as M calls him in Goldeneye. Yes, yes. So what do you do with that guy after you've had a successful reintroduction of him in Casino Royale. So I, I feel like going into Quantum of Solace, even though there's a lot of goodwill toward Bond and, and a lot of new interest in Bond, this is a movie I would not want to have worked on. I would not want the pressure of following Casino Royale. Well, and, and not only the pressure, but so they had a script mm -hmm. and Paul Haggis, Mark Foster, and Michael G. Wilson, they rewrote the story from scratch. Right. And Haggis said that, you know, he completed the script just hours before the writer's strike happened <laughs> from 2007 to 2008. Uh. And Craig is, is quoted in her interview. I got this from Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt, but I mm -hmm. think it's, it's probably legit. He said, you know, we had a bare bones of a script, and then there was the writer's strike, and there's nothing we could do. 
you couldn't employ a rider to finish. And I say to myself, never again, but who knows? <laughs> there was me trying to rewrite scenes and a writer I am not, you know, and so... The, the, the thought of him and, and Mark Foster sitting there trying to rewrite this script as they're going, knowing they're trying to follow up what had been labeled the best Bond movie ever yeah. with Casino Royale. I have no clue uh, the, the pressure these guys felt like they probably were under. So, you know, I think that it helps to, and it's where I wanted to start the discussion here, mm-hmm when you're watching this film to view it through that lens Mm -hmm. because any faults that this movie has a lot of them come from the script now we can talk about also the direction Mm -hmm. you know you might not like some of mark foster's quick cutting uh the way that it's directed those kind of things but for a whole i think you know even just talking to most bond fans they come at this film and it's kind of the story coming off of Casino Royale that felt so, even though it's a long Bond movie, felt tight and, and you know, the, the storyline felt pretty tight. Uh, this one, you know, this is actually the shortest Bond movie of them all you know, as well. I, I was kind of shocked, actually, when I looked at the uh, timer of my Blu-ray player when I got to the end of it, thinking... Wow, that that was under two hours, really. Yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and even at the hour and a half mark, I, I kind of you know knowing the movie already, I was like, oh, they're about to wrap this up. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Yep. So yeah, it, it is a little surprising because the the pacing doesn't feel like a movie that's that short. Um, and like you said, you you could lay that at the writing. Um, you know, I always go into, and I, I've said this on Mission Log before, but I always go into watching something assuming that nobody wants to make a bad movie and nobody wants to make a bad tv show and you're sort of you know you're given the tools to go make this movie but then if something comes up short yeah it's a risky thing for an actor and director and producer to kind of collude on what will change on the fly and will that really play out in uh in the editing process and and what will that finally be on screen so it's a huge risk, but um, you know, eventually you just sort of have to make the movie. You you just sort of have to do it, no matter what. And sometimes you get the most brilliant stuff by doing that. Um, I think Paul Haggis is a very interesting writer. He's a very good writer, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and I think his personal story as well is sort of fascinating. Um, but. You know, we'll get to our final summary of how this movie holds up or doesn't hold up um, and and what they're trying to do with it. But I, I agree with what you're trying to do here, which is in the introduction for the audience, say, okay, look, we have to put on the right sort of the right goggles to view this mm, yeah <laughs> and we yeah. have to say we need some uh we need some whiskey goggles right, to go right. on <laughs> yeah 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 speaking of which ruby or somebody better check on norman to see you know if he's under a table somewhere just you know with the uh, a whiskey induced catatonic state mm-hmm. uh, that's why exactly. i'm sticking with red wine tonight but but yeah no i i think what you're doing is wise is to say okay look here are the problems facing the production i don't think it's an excuse but it helps to explain what's going on and and why it doesn't feel quite right in some places. And, you know, I guess, too, when you do that, you could say the argument could be you know, just don't make the movie 
mm-hmm. at that point and wait till the writer's strike is over. But then you're against a lot of other things. You're against the investment in the movie by a lot of different people. And I, I think I think they thought that they could do it. Uh, and, and they were kind of with their backs against the wall with a lot of different stuff. You know, with the contract that they have with Craig when he's available. Yeah, All of yeah. these things come into play. So there's so much going on behind the scenes. And so knowing, I think, that there is a writer's strike does put you, I think, in the right frame of mind to be able to judge, okay, if you're seeing a problem with the writing, it's probably coming from the fact that they're making up some of the stuff on the fly. Yeah. Much like Bond in this movie, who (laughs) is making it up as he goes along, which I think is, is something we'll talk about. But one of the most interesting things, aside from Bond versus the writers here, this is the first direct sequel of any Bond movie. You know, we've had 20 different films um, loosely based on the books, or if, you know, it's On Her Majesty's Secret Service, it's very much the book. Mm. Uh, this is an original story by the, the producers here, but it's also the first time that they've directly followed up what happened last time. So it's in, instead of James Bond will return in, it's more like, Last time on James Bond. <laughs> right. Yeah, you start out literally minutes after that last scene in Casino Royale. And Mr. Yes, White is yeah. in the trunk. Yes. And you, you go right into the action. So great choice, I think, from a movie-making uh, standpoint. Go right into the action, this great car chase. Wow. Um, I, I'm, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm still not convinced that a couple of alphas could keep up with an Aston Martin, but, you know, that's, uh, that's okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a little uh, creative license there. Um, but, yeah, you know, there are little moments in Bond films that acknowledge the other movies. So even if it's, like you said, uh, OHMSS, where you've got a new Bond saying this never happened to the other fella, and going through his desk, mm-hmm. seeing those elements from the previous missions. Or let's go to um, uh, what is in the opening of For Your Eyes Only, and we have a reference to Tracy Bond. So, oh, yeah. 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 And, and then we pick that up again. And I think it, I can't remember which Brosnan movie it is, uh, but we reference that Bond had been married before. I think it's Tomorrow Never Dies. I think you're right. I feel like yeah. when he's talking to Terry Hatcher's character, mm-hmm. he references the fact that he was married before. I think you're right, yeah. But there's these little moments, and then you know they take it a step further in this. So we have a, a direct sequel, but you have a direct through line as well. So even though you have you have the the bad guy and the action to follow the plot along with the the, the bad guy and chasing down the bad guy, the undercurrent here is the sense of revenge and this this heartbreak slash steeliness that Bond has developed because of what just happened. And by the way, there's a really minor little uh, uh, reference back to other Bond films. I don't know if you noticed that in Haiti, when uh, Bond shows up at the the shipping yard, um, he gives a guy a business card, and it's Mm -hmm. R. Sterling from Universal Export. Now, uh, Robert Sterling was Bond's alias in The Spy Who Loved Me. And this is one of the first on-screen references we get in a long time to uh, Universal Export. 
So it was glad. Which was great that they call and yeah, we, our offices are closed. At right, the moment, you know, <laughs> right. like it's all, it's great. So it's really good stuff. But but yeah, throughout the whole thing, you watch this and you say to yourself, okay, out of everything that Bond is doing now, how is this influenced by what just happened to him? So even if the specific action is not about Vesper and it's not about Mr. White, you still say, okay, his behavior in this scene, is it different now than it would have been if he hadn't just gone through the hell that he went through in Casino Royale? He's, in some scenes, he is a colder, more machine-like Bond Mm-hmm. than the mm-hmm. guy that we've gotten to know certainly over 50 years but even in that time since we first got to know him again in Casino Royale well and it's really interesting thing too because I mean doing the direct sequel gives you the opportunity to show that there's continuity that you are going to be paying attention to what you did before and you're specifically working on a character arc for Bond with Craig you know so in a lot of ways you are differentiating yourself between what's come before by saying we're going to make a concerted effort to actually tell stories about James Bond not just about things that James Bond does right but the character himself and as we talked about in Casino Royale I I think it's revolutionary that they would continue that in Quantum because the character gets to progress. He gets to have an actual arc, you know, other than we had this adventure and then the next adventure happens. And it's almost like the first adventure really didn't happen except for a few quick remarks we might make here and there. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, we're... And I know that we'll talk about this again in Skyfall quite a bit, but you know yeah. the, the, the brilliance <laughs> yeah. of these movies is that you know you can only reinvent a fifty-year-old character so much. So the trick is how do you how do you reinvent? How do you make a character relevant again? And then how do you justify the things that have become the hallmarks of this character that we've known for so long? That's really the tricky thing to do. And if this had, you know, for all the problems we discussed about the writing of this movie, had this been in the hands of lesser writers, that would have been obscured and obfuscated. And I feel like we would have gotten, you know, a third of the movie that we got here. Even if people don't feel like this is their favorite Craig movie, so what? Um, It's a bold choice and it's the right choice. And it lends so much more nuance and understanding and and I think sort of uh, uh, an emotional connection to the character rather than just seeing here's Bond doing a cool thing. We know he's going to kill the bad guy, but you know what's the emotional impact of that along the way? And that's something that I think is so wonderful about this movie is that it it is trying to grow Bond and, and because you're connecting with everything that happened before... You know, that was his first mission after becoming a double O. And so, of course, it's going to have massive ramifications for him because it was a massively moving thing. And you can tell in this movie that so much of him is kind of 
if you felt like Bond was shut down before, he really is the machine just trying to go through life at this point because he doesn't trust anybody except M. Yeah. You know, I think that's the that's one of the things I really love about this too is that you know, not only are we going Bond, but they're really setting this thread about the relationship between Bond and M and that he's the only thing, the only person at this point after Vesper that he truly cares about. Yeah. And it, it very much and it, she's for all intents and purposes, you know, Bond's mom. Yeah, right. Well, it, here's the difficulty with the Bond movie, and, and it's the same kind of difficulty that you have with Star Trek. It's that no matter what story you write to put on the screen, you're also writing the meta story, the meta movie that's going on underneath that that's mm, for yeah. the audience, okay? It's for the audience who knows the whole backstory and it's for the audience that's seen every movie um, or maybe just a handful of the movies that are their favorites that they connect to Bond, to their understanding of Bond. So I'm going to jump right to the end and say that, you know, I think one of the best moments here is M saying to Bond, it's good to have you back and Bond saying, I never left. Because if you've never seen a Bond movie before, maybe if you've only seen Casino Royale and then you've only seen Quantum of Solace as the the, the pickup to that story, in Quantum, over and over and over again, we see Bond disobeying orders, sneaking around outside of the parameters that he's been given. He's acting on gut and evidence, but, but primarily his gut. And he's yeah. <laughs> right. He's right. That's the important thing here. You know, so his gut was the right thing to follow. So, yes, he never left because his loyalty was still to the mission and it was still to M and it was still to Queen and Country. Okay, but to the audience, we are also saying with that line in a major way, that Bond is still Bond, and Bond is not going anywhere. So whatever we do with this character, he's still your character. He's still there for you, the audience, who has been here since Dr. No, or since The Spy Who Loved Me, or since Goldeneye, or whatever. Bond isn't going anywhere. So we, we know that he's still the good guy. We know that he will persevere. We know that he will make the right decisions even if he is morally compromised <laughs> sometimes, yeah, you know? So uh, that's why I think that's such a great moment because it's one of those moments that plays for the story, but it also plays directly into the brains of every Bond fan watching this movie. And one of the things that I do really love about Casino Royale is that as we're growing Bond, we're also making him relatable. So somebody mm -hmm. who just went through this massive ordeal where he doesn't feel like he can trust anyone except for M. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, Vesper had had turned on him, he thought. You know, Mathis had turned on him, he thought. All of these things, this is a man who, who he doesn't feel like he has anyone to trust in the world. And, and they make him relatable because everybody's felt like that before in mm -hmm. life, where they're mm -hmm. just like, I can't trust anybody. Nobody cares about me, really. Because of that, I feel a little bit directionless. And that's one of the things that I like about this film as well is that the beginning of the movie, after the big car chase, after all that's revealed about, you know, Quantum, you get to 
Bond's just kind of flying by the seat of his pants, mm-hmm. trying to figure things out. Yep. He's not necessarily getting it right. <laughs> right. Um, and all of that is playing into the, the the character arc for who he is and what he's been going through. So I just there's some really smart things that are happening here, and yeah. it all revolves around this making a character a little bit more relatable that on a whole, you know, James Bond is, oh, you know, I, I can't be James Bond. Nobody's going to be James Bond. But in some ways, I feel like I understand. And, you know, in some ways, Bond has the same problem that a lot of people think that Superman has. How do you make this character actually relatable to real people? Right, right. And I think the Craig films on a whole, they not only make him relatable, but they do it in a way that still pays homage to actually who James Bond has always been, which is the super spy, the guy I could never be. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, somehow I feel like I might be able to be him a little bit more because of how Craig and the storylines have played him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And and what a great idea to team him up um, with with a, a woman who is capable, who is also motivated by revenge who gets to have these, you know, maybe you'd argue about the writing a little too on the nose, but but still insightful conversations with Bond about how that feels, you know? Yeah, you can do this. You can go kill the guy who wronged you, but how does that feel at the end of the day? You know, what, what does that ultimately mean to you? Does that make the pain go away? Well, not necessarily. So... So if that's not the case, then how do you get on with your life and, and what is your motivation for the next mission, for the next thing you have to do? So um, I thought it was a great choice to make that character who she was. I thought that was one of the characters that suffered a little bit from maybe not having another pass at the writing. It, it was just mm-hmm. almost there. Not quite, but it was so close. Well, and the, the I think the beautiful thing about Camille in the film mm-hmm is the fact that, you know, obviously she's the mirror for Bond, and like you said, it yeah. is it is quite on the nose. Yeah. But at the same time, she is every bit James Bond's equal. Mm-hmm. And when we say that, we're not placating. We're not doing the thing that all James Bond <laughs> women have done in the past and said, oh, I'm his equal and all yeah. this. Yeah. This is the one who doesn't even sleep with Bond. Yeah. You know, she's the one who I think... Uh, Craig's Bond actually respects in a way that that, that he that might not get shown in, in in other iterations of Bond. Like he has, he never treats her as if somebody he's going to just bed. Yeah, and I like that so much about the character. And it's it is sad that, like you said, they didn't get necessarily a chance to maybe refine the character just a bit more right. with the writing to truly make her a standout. Yeah, I mean, they're both coming from that same place. He is right off of the the death of Vesper and, and how he will deal with that, how that all relates back to the mission at hand. And she's been harboring this grudge for more than a decade about what happened to her family. Um, so it, it's really great stuff. We, we only got chunks of dialogue about that here and there. And, and when they did it, it, it was yeah, it, both too much on the nose and also a little bit meandering <laughs> but but it's okay it, it's yeah. it, you know we'll we'll get to our final thoughts on that 
in in a little bit. <laughs> you know? Well, I wanted to ask you, you know, as we're talking about the character of Bond here, mm-hmm. one of the things that I noticed about this movie is that it's one of the few times where Bond is actively having to do some kind of spy work. You know, like yeah. he, he's having to figure things out as he goes along. It's it's not just he's sent on a mission, but this is Bond doing what he's been trained to do, which is to figure out what's going on. And he doesn't always get it right, which, it, you know, it, it kind of feels like that's the meta story of this movie. Uh, you know, they're trying to do something, but they can't quite get it right because there's some factors, you know, outside their preview that they don't have any control over. And I, you know... I can think of, I feel like Dr. No is probably the best example of Bond really doing some detective work. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, um, one of the very few times Bond does detective work and actual spy things, you know, when he plucks out the hair, mm-hmm. and he puts it on the door to know if somebody's been in his room. I mean, the things that actual spies might do. Right, right. <laughs> you know, this is the same thing. He, he's following these leads. He's trying to figure it out. I don't. What did you think about that? Because that's a, that's quite a bit different than some of the Bond movies, especially we'd had with Pierce Brosnan, where it just felt like it went from action sequence to action sequence. Yeah, things are a little sloppy for Bond in a few places. You know, he uh, when he first gets to Haiti, it's best not to dwell on the past, John, <laughs> as he says to him. <laughs> uh, he was a dead end, right? <laughs> Yeah, when he first gets to uh, to Haiti, to uh, Port-au-Prince, and um, just has this, wow, God, what an interesting way to shoot that fight scene, um, where mm-hmm. he, he's holding this guy down as he dies to then take his place. Um, and so we, we go from there later in the movie. Well, okay, he kills the uh, one of the bodyguards that Green has dispatched upon him in uh, the opera house. And uh, later on, we, we see the death of Mathis and we see the death of Miss Fields. And these are all moments that, that Bond is, well, maybe except for the bodyguard, it's just kind of sloppy. But he's having to do the hard work. And what's even more entertaining, well... Entertaining is a weird word for it, but what's what's more interesting (laughs) is that then the information that keeps getting filtered back to MI6 is the wrong information Mm -hmm. because it's the local reports and the local reports are totally corrupt. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so so everything is a couple of steps removed from Bond actually doing the right thing at the right time. He's sloppy. The reports are sloppy. There's bodies everywhere, you know, and, and there are repercussions to this. So, yeah, it is very different from just sort of Brosnan showing up and looking cool and this is the right guy to deal with. It, it, this this version of Bond is... Um, He's having to figure it out and, like I said, go on his gut uh, throughout most of this and and kind of hope that he's right. Well, and this movie, too, does this wonderful thing where Bond always trusts M, mm-hmm. but I think M finally learns that she can always trust Bond in this movie. Yeah. And yeah. that's a really cool storyline, again, for them as they have this very maternal relationship you know it, it, she's the mother of 
Bond, for all intents and purposes, the one that he looks to, the one that he trusts implicitly. Yeah. Um, and, and this movie does a great job, too, of continuing on Casino Royale's conversation about the way in which intelligence agencies are hampered by the fact that we live in such a digital world where everything is you know taking a picture of now no matter where you are you know somehow Mm -hmm. there's a picture there's a report of it you know it's funny that tomorrow never dies is all about the media mogul who wants to control the world with you know news (laughs) you know but at the same time these movies without necessarily referencing it too much are all about the way in which the world has changed dramatically right well, it was pretty remarkable to me that um, every cell phone call in this movie goes through, and they can all hear each other. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know. Doesn't even happen now. No. On my iPhone six. <laughs> uh, you, you know, they they have uh, one of the one of the sci-fi tropes that uh, that I'm not a big fan of, which is the magic picture, where you you can take a blurry cell phone picture, but you can still get enough resolution. To get every detail about the person, you don't have that program. I do on your not. Computer, I, it's called the Blade Runner program, right? You can zoom in infinitely, right? like yeah. by just there's there's no limit to the amount <laughs> you can actually zoom into a picture. Right, right. It's called the Blade Runner program. I know. Yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, it, I don't. Have they that. use it on CSI all the time. I thought everybody <laughs> had that. So, yeah. So I mean, it, it, it's fun how they use technology, and it's fun how um, you know that. That technology will be the perfect lead at the perfect moment. Right from the beginning, you have the $10 bill that mm-hmm. gets tracked. And boy, do they make use out of that, you know, Microsoft table computer. And that is the coolest thing the ever. It's the best. It's like, the best. It's and then they the take it a best. step further and put it on the wall. And you see little lines when phone yes. calls are getting connected. And, you know, that's that's very cool. But just the idea that. Like you're saying, take that a step beyond. And even if that's the part that's unbelievable, the part that is believable is that a spy who's out there in the field will have cell phone contact back with the office, that he'll be able to throw a false phone number to throw off his trail to somebody, and that you'll be able to send and receive information instantly halfway around the world um, to you know to confirm or or at least... Uh, dig a little deeper on a lead that he's got. So all of that's pretty fascinating. I mean, I, I thought clearly one of the one of the most interesting uses of technology was in that scene in the Opera House in Austria, um, where you've got everybody from Quantum watching the opera. And what better way to have a top secret meeting than in a public place? Kind of brilliant. You know, it's a great, great idea. And they all have the little earpieces. And then Bond does exactly what anybody in his shoes would do. As soon as he rats them out, he starts taking pictures. Yep, yep. <laughs> you know? Puts it on Instagram. Yeah, right, right. Oh, there's that guy, there's that lady. Instagram and villains. Yes, <laughs> right, right. So it's kind of brilliant because that's what we would do. We know that's exactly what we would do. And, and and that's what I love about that scene is that it's so smart for Bond. Mm-hmm. He interrupts the meeting, mm-hmm. and by doing that, all the dumb people in the organization <laughs> get up and allow him to be able to see who they are, right. and all the smart people stay seated. You know, it it's just so fantastic. Right. And 
you know, one of the things that before we kind of jump into the villains that this movie does do, and I'm going to, this is for you, Alice, um, <laughs> my bigger moment here, how quantum can teach us something. <laughs> but Mathis has a really great point about how, you, you know, as you get older, the heroes and the villains, they get all mixed up. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to trust. Yeah. And especially when we see that the different people involved on all sides, it's coming down to they're not governed by a right or a wrong anymore. It's really some sort of consumerist mentality. And especially here with this movie, it's oil. Yeah. But it, 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 it it's about, yeah, things that don't necessarily completely matter. That aren't based in a, in a right and a wrong. There's there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just well, we need this, and so therefore we're going to do what we know is the wrong thing to do to get what we need. And it, it's just such an interesting thing that they're making a huge conversation about that in this movie. Obviously, the U.S. still the bad guys, um, <laughs> you know, as we are often portrayed in Bond. Well, films. people, people um, within the U.S. I mean, they you just immediately are telegraphed that the, this other uh, the, this other agent um, from the CIA is not to be trusted, no matter what. But you mm-hmm. got Felix Leiter there, and you know Felix is going to do right by Bond. <laughs> you know, so yeah. so even. Even if the 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 structure is unmanageable within that structure, you've got people who have the sort of the right moral compass to hopefully be the the check and the balance against the people who don't. You know, so even within MI six, we learn that there are people who are on the wrong side. But if you've got Bond there and you got M there, then hopefully things will be okay. You know, so. Um, but yeah, that was an interesting choice because uh, Green Green pretty much spells it out. He says, look, I don't care about your political affiliation. I don't care who you're with. We're in this to make money, and we will support whichever regime is the one that's on our side. So that— At the moment, yeah. We, yeah. We just, yeah. Yeah, that, that's his sole motivation is to grow— the power of their organization. And if it means deposing one leader and sticking into office another, so be it. Doesn't matter at all. They will find a way to profit no matter what. Um, God, you know, it's so interesting that just today, before we recorded this show, there were two stories that popped up in, um, well, one in my news feed and another that I heard on the radio. And uh, the one on the radio was about how there are islands uh, near Sacramento that mm-hmm. have water. Okay, California, as of today, as of you know September twenty second, twenty fifteen, we are stuck in a hellacious drought. Um, and so, what do we do about it? Well, there are islands that just happen to have this sort of bowl shape after years of farming and erosion and stuff that have collected water. Right, the islands are owned by Zurich American, so Zurich, the insurance company, and they were sold (laughs) off decades and decades ago just as an investment. You know, they just picked them up as an investment. And now we might be back in the position of having to negotiate with this foreign corporate power to get water. Absolutely perfect. Ripped from the headlines related to this movie. The other story that I read today, and I haven't really vetted this one, so I don't know all the details. I don't know who, who's 
clearly there's somebody being made out to be wrong, but there's a story about a former hedge fund investor who picked up the rights to a drug that shows incredible promise in treating and preventing AIDS. And this one pill that did run for $13 a pill has now been marked up to $750 a pill. So again, talk about a Bond villain ripped out of the headlines. Here's somebody who seemingly, and, and like I said, I haven't vetted the story, but if, if you go by kind of the popular version of this is out there now, here's somebody who in the tradition of a Bond villain sees an opportunity regardless of the political or humanitarian costs and says, aha, there's a profit to be made. So I will do this. Well, and, you know, talking about the villain, you know, they specifically decided to go with an ecological terrorist. Yeah. Um, and an environment with the environmental angle, uh, which is a really interesting take, as you said, with the fact that water rights are a huge issue around the world. And in a place like California right now, yeah. where it just has not rained, it's becoming a big deal. And of course, mismanagement of resources, mm-hmm. overpopulation in a certain area that just is not sustainable. I mean, there's all these things. But yeah. like you said, in the end, it came down to this villain was all about. We don't care if you're on the right. We don't care if you're on the left. We don't care who you are, mm-hmm. what you do. If you're going to benefit us somehow, we will use you. Yeah. And then we will lose you. Yeah, right. Uh, right. You know, and what I liked about that is that there was no clear message of saying, look, um, global warming people are right. Non-global warming people are wrong. Mm-hmm. The message was to me, it was like, everybody that's higher up, who knows what kind of corruption they're into? Because, like, that's what this movie was saying. Like, everyone's corrupt. Right. The American side, the British side, the villain side. Like, it's all muddied. It's all a mess. And who can we put our faith in? Well, of course, the movie, it's it's in James Bond. Yeah. You know, in James Bond, we trust. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it, it makes it to an extent that there's not an ideological argument to be had with these guys. So... We don't know how much money Bond makes, but Bond does well enough on the uh, you know the the government expense account. <laughs> you know when he's yeah. <laughs> when he's spending M's money, he's doing great. You know, but there's not an ideological argument to be had with these bad guys, because as you said, it's not a left or right issue. It's not a um, it's not a scientific or non scientific argument or any of this. It really is just about well, how do we profit from power? You know, what's in it for us? So um, that that's, you know, what do you do in a situation like that? Well, if you're Bond and you have a license to kill, you kill the guy. Um, and then there is yeah, sort of, exactly. you know, there is sort of a, a silver lining there that um, in his final discussion with Camille, you know, it sounds like there'll be a way to reconcile what happened with hoarding that water. They'll be able to reopen uh, reopen that reservoir and uh, and get it out to the people in Bolivia. But um, yeah, it, it is fascinating that it's sort of a rip from the headlines thing. It is about ecology, but it's not preachy by any means. Um, and it's, it, it's relevant without being, um, w- without sort of being like, uh, like James Bond by numbers or or worse, you know, like Star Trek by numbers. We just go, okay, well, what what's the issue of the day? Okay, we'll check that one off. We've handled that. Bond really hasn't had to do that. Uh, but every now and then they try to be a little too close to current events. Um, 
but this is a movie where it, it it kind of works by making that choice because you know what would an audience in 2008 really believe are they going to believe that people would hoard water and starve out an area of the world where they believe um you know, using diamonds to fund uh, satellites that eat other satellites. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, may, maybe depending on how you write that other story, they believe yeah. it again. Yeah. This, what I I think is great about this movie, like you said, it it's not trying to tell you which ideology to, to get behind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think what it's saying is that everything these days is suspect mm-hmm. because you can use like is green here is using these uh, the compassion of people yeah to further his gain you know as he said we'll we'll use anybody and so if we need to use the the idea of taking care of the planet heck we'll use that <laughs> we'll play right. on your fears that way yeah. You know, so that's one of the most interesting things about this is that, again, the only people that you can trust in this whole situation are M and Bond and and Felix and Camille. Those are the people that you can trust in this building. And and what they're saying, I thought, in the movie was really interesting is they're holding on to something bigger than just the way the wind's blowing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I kind of struggled with certain ideas in this movie a little bit because I felt like um, there is a danger in being hyper-conspiratorial. You know, the, 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 well, yeah, you know, yep. yeah, the, the end result <laughs> of that, the end result of that, sadly, is that you don't trust anybody or anything. You know, mm-hmm. you, you don't trust anyone or any evidence about anything. And, and that is a sad and horrible way to live. You know, um, so for as many of us who feel like, OK, well, we want to do the right thing for the environment, we want to support the mm-hmm. causes that we feel like can can do the right thing uh, uh, politically, environmentally, socially, whatever. Well, this presents a guy who has totally absconded that for personal gain, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> yeah. these guys writing checks at the party at the fundraising party, they have no idea. Like, Oh, here's a million dollars. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to go blow that on subjugating more people and owning water rights that I will profit right. from tremendously, you know? So uh, I, I feel like a little bit of that goes a long way, but you know, they're, they're doing this tightrope walk about, what is believable to the audience versus what is sort of the the fantasy version of the world that that we show in a movie like this. So, you know, going back to something that you said about um, how we are just not to trust anybody in the U.S. because these government U.S. officials are just getting behind anybody that they feel like is politically expedient to own a part of the world or at least have a little say so in any part of the world. Um, yeah, that's real rich coming from a Brit. Yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, I love that. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> um, and, and you know, a part of you can watch that and go like, oh yeah, yeah. There's there's the Americans doing that again. You know, if you if you believe that, even if there's a little part of your brain that says like, yeah, that's that's the worst part of what we do. And, and you can kind of allow yourself to believe that, um, which is is a little unfortunate. But then the fantasy version of this movie is that kind of like I said in our discussion about the man from Uncle, it's sort of like no matter where he goes, 
anywhere at all times, everybody's a spy. Like, everybody's in yeah, on it all yeah, the time. Yeah. You know, the local cops, the people at the party, the people at the hotel, they're just all in it all the time. So you kind of watch it and go, oh, okay, well, that part I just have to sort of suspend my disbelief as well. <laughs> you know, and that's what makes a Bond film fun, and that's what makes something like The Man from Uncle fun as well. This villain, you know, with Green and Quantum itself, because um, we, we really haven't talked about Quantum at all. How do they play for you? You know, we have some great Bond villains, obviously, Blofeld and Spectre probably being at the top. You know, great henchmen like Jaws or Oddjob. You know, obviously, Goldfinger is a Dr. No is a good villain, I think. Uh, all of these villains out there in Bond, and, and a lot of times Bond, I think, is more measured in how good the villain is than how good Bond is. Um, how does this villain and what they're trying to do with it uh, and kind of creating this specter-like mm-hmm. organization called Quantum. Does this, this work for you or did it need some more? How does the villain actually work? Well, you know, that's what's so interesting here is that I, I feel like, so it, the premise is something that we both can kind of believe. The premise being there is an mm-hmm. organization that only cares about power and money that would do something environmentally and socially and, and, and on a human level be detrimental. And we can kind of believe that. You know, I don't know what that says about our world, but we can, we can believe that, right? Now, Bond has the baggage of 50 years of you just said it. Spectre, you got a, a, a guy with a cat. <laughs> in a in a secret underground volcano lair, and then you got another guy <laughs> with a Rolls Royce covered in gold, and then you got another guy with a space station that nobody knows about. So that's the fifty year history of Bond. You haven't been to my space station yet, John. I I'm still waiting for my invitation. I assume it got lost <laughs> in the mail. Totally not fair, right? <laughs> so so. That's kind of the baggage that we're dealing with, and, and it becomes parody because then when Austin Powers does Doctor Evil based on the mm-hmm. the Donald Pleasant's version of Blofeld, and he's got an underground lair, and he has the you know incredibly slow dipping mechanism, and you know sh- I just what is a freaking sharks with the freaking laser beams? <laughs> right, right. So, so the problem is then that as good as that stuff is, you know, to us just sort of within the context of a Bond movie, decades and decades later, you have to reinvent that. So how do you do it? Well, like I said, I think it's brilliant to put the secret meeting out in public. That's so cool. No, they don't need a secret underground volcano there. They're right next to us. They're sitting right there at a night at the theater, right? Um, The other way that you do it is from the beginning – you don't even know that they are in your organization and you don't even know what quantum is to begin with. Mm. Here's a guy mm. in the interrogation of Mr. White who just pulls out a gun because he's one of the bad guys and M and Bond had no idea and they had no idea who Mr. White works for. So this is a great way to go back and reinvent that and keep the audience guessing. Because I feel like today, if it's just a guy in a volcano lair holding a cat, all Bond has to do is show up and aim for the guy with the cat. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So this pulls the carpet out from everything that we're comfortable with in a Bond movie and and is parody worthy in a Bond movie. Um, 
So I think it's a great choice. And now it makes me very anxious to see what we end up with in Spectre, because Spectre does have a history by name in the Bond films. So how does quantum tie into that? And how do all of these people sort of mingle where you've got you've got a guy at the bottom of the totem pole like Le Chiffre is just the money guy. You got a guy above him like White, but then White is sort of a minor player compared to Green and the rest of Quantum. It it's really fascinating to sit there and build this tangled web in your head to try to figure out how they all meet up. Because you're playing that along with the characters in the movie. You're playing that along with M and with Tanner and with Bond. I think that may be one of the best scenes in the movie when she's like People say we have people everywhere. I mean, florists say that, but you don't expect them to be in the bloody room. You know, it's it's such a great story point yeah. to have this organization that, yes, MI6 doesn't know anything about, CIA don't know anything about. It's so well hidden, and yet, like you said, they're at Tosca yeah. Yeah. In, in Austria just watching the play in broad you know, not broad daylight, but in front of everyone, they're they're not hiding. Yeah, but they're so well hidden, nobody knows about them. And I'm with you. My thought has been, you know, on Quantum and Spectre, how they work together is that Quantum is a front for Spectre. There's another layer. Right. It's like a. That's my guess, because it it's kind of the only thing that just kind of makes sense at the moment until I see the movie and they explain to me how this is all worked together because they're obviously not just going to drop quantum right so because that just wouldn't make any sense so. well you know what you're describing it, it's it's taking the the things that can be parried parodied in bond and doing what Austin Powers did, which is to take those elements to their sort of logical extreme. So what Austin Powers does when you have a character like Dr. Evil uh, um, or, or uh, Mustafa, you know, Will Ferrell's character or, yeah. or whatever. I'm very badly burned. <laughs> <laughs> so what what uh, Mike Myers is doing is he's taking these ideas to their logical extreme, their hilarious extreme where you go, okay, well, well, these people have to do things during the day. They have to eat and they have to brush their teeth and they have to order their supplies from somewhere. And Dr. Evil has a son, you know, so he gets to have fun with that. And then you come back to a movie like Quantum of Solace where then you, you get to make that serious again because you go, oh, no, 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 these aren't, these aren't parodies living in an underground lair. These are, as M points out when she's getting the pictures, and, oh, yeah, this is a guy who runs a telecom business. This is a guy who was, you know, had a seat in the, in the House of Parliament. This is a guy who does this. They are all around. They already have the perfect cover because we had no idea that this was anything related to who they are. I think that's it's such a... Again, it's really relevant to today, mm -hmm. um, and and I like that so much. I wanted to ask you to, you know, we, we've talked a lot of, around a lot of things. What are some of the things that you really like about this movie? And then I want to talk about some of the things maybe that we didn't like, mm -hmm. and then move into after that. And I think a really important question of, okay, we've both just recently rewatched the film. How do we feel about it now, and is that different? Yeah. Well, so I'll start with things that I did like. Um, 
I think that the the number one standout here, the number one takeaway, is we get this further nuanced development of Bond, like you said, mm. and said so well that now Bond is the character that we're concerned about. We're not concerned about the action of Bond. Um, I think that's first and foremost. Now, we get great action scenes here as well. That opening car chase is terrific. <laughs> it's so good. Um, that scene of uh, uh, Bond killing a guy in Port-au-Prince, like I said, it's disturbing to watch because it happens quickly and quietly, and we just sort of linger on watching this guy die. Mm. It harkens back to <laughs> yeah. it harkens back a little to Doctor No, not as clean mm-hmm. as Doctor yeah. No, but it, it harkens back uh, a bit to that. Um, I like I like the little references and I like the big references. I like the little reference, like the business card from Universal Export. Um, you know the the big like hit you over the head references bond sitting on that uh i think that was a 747 maybe with mathis flying virgin atlantic and he's had mm-hmm. six vespers yeah <laughs> you know but but it's a, even though that hits you over the head with it it's a good scene because he and mathis are so good in that scene mm. you know they really are yeah it, it, so I, I can forgive a scene like that where the the dialogue is maybe a little hit you over the head but but it's played correctly i think you and my, you and i both are going to say that we just love the the opera scene you know you, you can't hit that mm-hmm. enough um it was curious to me that we've seen more of m outside of mi6 in the last two movies than we've seen of m outside of mi6 in all the previous bond movies <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at least for Judy Dench, and, and she said this, that she wasn't doing the thing that she was doing in uh, The World Is Not Enough, where she's trying to create uh, the apparatus to get out of her jail cell, mm-hmm. when she was like, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I just, I, <laughs> so, yeah, I think she's a little more comfortable with this kind of being out of the office than that being out of the right, office. Right, right. <laughs> um, I think overall the casting is good. Um, little shout out to uh, Gemma Arterton, who I think is uh, this is not a great role, Mrs. Fields. Um, all, no, it's really not. It, yeah. I mean, when your biggest moment is getting covered in oil, right? Right. To reference Goldfinger. To reference Goldfinger. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not a great role, but um, I think that she is an underappreciated actor. Um, uh, I've seen her in a lot of other like kind of small indie films, and she's great. Um, you know, there's a very Bond moment of them switching hotel rooms where they, they mm-hmm. show up at their cover hotel. And he's just like, no, I'm getting out of here. He's like, oh, hell no. We ain't staying here. <laughs> you know? So there's just so many good little moments. That that flight in, uh, what was it, a DC-3 that he and Camille are in? Oh, yeah. Wow, yeah. boy, that is really nice. a really interesting battle scene. Um, and I do like the idea that this is sort of a rip from the headline story, but they play it in such a way that it has still kind of a timeless feel to it. Um, so I, I, th- I think those are definitely things that I like about it. The things that I don't like about it, I, I do feel like the movie slows down in a few places and not because they're not trying. You know, they, they are trying to cut it kind of quick, but um, especially when we get to the desert and we get to the hotel, I feel like the, the mm-hmm. movie loses its bearings in a weird way. Um, 
you sort of don't really feel like you know exactly where they are and and who is where in space in that building. Um, it's just kind of an odd location. I feel like Bond has failed a couple of times in the desert, particularly like showing up in Mexico in um, License to Kill, <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. He turns up at the, the weird televangelist place Right, right. That, just, yeah. that, that movie took a weird turn when we got it there. It did, you know? it did. Um, you know, even... If there are things here that you say are hit you on the head, like uh, like like Camille's revenge um, against the general, um, and boy is he a scumbag! Um, oh and, God, yeah. he's terrible. He is, I mean, just, but but you're rooting. You can't for wait her. for him to her to pull a bullet. Right, him. right. You know, you just like yeah. Yeah, you're just waiting for that to happen. Um, th- there's a minor thing that I didn't like. And again, you go back to the writing for something like this. Bond sort of drops down on the the, the driveway of the hotel when that uh, Humvee is pulling out. You and I had a mutual friend as he's shooting. No, they're not going to hear you. <laughs> you know? And no, we're not ready for this Bond to have quips. You know, so so yeah, yeah. It, it, little little things like that just feel clunky to me um and and what the hell is that hotel made of it's like rocks and steel coated in napalm exactly (laughs) these fill these fuel cells that yeah i didn't yeah it was very strange yeah basically as they said it's it's just meant to blow up right in the movie (laughs) you know um you know some of the things that I really liked mm-hmm. about the movie. I love the opening of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually really like the direction of this film, the way that it's cut, the action sequences, especially that the artistic nature I felt of the cuts that he was using with that car chase right. through that tunnel. That's not actually a car tunnel; it's actually a train tunnel right. that they used somehow. Um, <laughs> That whole scene is is just fantastic, and then the chase across the the skyline of of Seville mm-hmm. as they're running on the rooftops with the bells, and and that was really beautiful. And then when they fall in and they do that whole fight sequence, and they're like spinning around, oh, and yeah. Bond's reaching yeah. for the gun, like I just all of that is so kinetic. Mm-hmm. I never have a problem with any of that. That's so good. I think for me. The things that don't kind of work in this movie are some of the story points, which is they convolute Mathis's story even more by making him not a traitor. Right. And that's not sufficiently explained. <laughs> um, I do, Although I do love having that actor back because his chemistry with, with Craig is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I feel like at the very, very end... The connection between Bond finding out who this guy is that had set Vesper up is never explained how he finds him. It's just like a coda almost to the end of the movie. You know, the movies always have a prologue for the most part with a Bond movie, but this actually just feels like a coda. Um, Yeah, it is interesting. There's a big missing chunk there because Bond took the picture early on of uh, Vesper Mm -hmm. and Yusuf um, when they were about to interrogate... Uh, Mr. White, and then there's no other information about where Yusuf is. No, yeah, no. He just says we have people everywhere. Yeah, yeah. You know, you you, it, you it, don't even know. It's sort of like it's sort of like they knew they wanted to get that scene in the movie somehow, so they wrote it down, mm-hmm. 
and then just said, okay, well, whatever else happens in the movie, we've got to end with this. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So it, it's good payoff, but like you said, it, it, it doesn't fit. It, it does, it, logically, it's hard to get to. It doesn't. Yeah. It, it, it just, it again, it feels like a, a nice coda, to yeah. the, but it doesn't, I'm not seeing the logic of how he found out who that was unless, and, and I have to actually think about it decently to say that the information then that they found out about the different people he took a picture of mm-hmm. led somehow to them figuring out who this was. That's the only thing in the film that makes me think they might have been able to find some connection. Yeah. Well, remember that there is, yeah, there is mention early on of the Canadian and Yusuf's girlfriend is the Canadian, although there's not a really good explanation of where that information then actually revealed itself. So it does feel like if this were in a book, you'd be reading the book, you'd be done with the book, you skip a couple of blank pages, and then the headline is something like, Three months later, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> after Bond has done all of this other stuff. Yeah, epilogue. Yeah, yeah, we arrive in Kazan, Russia. Yeah. Having, you know, we've obviously both watched this movie quite a few times. Mm-hmm. And we both have recently rewatched the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think Quantum, obviously, we've talked about following Casino Royale and being sandwiched between that and Skyfall, two of the best Bond movies ever made, yeah. undeniable. This one gets a very, I think, bad rap. People just think it's just not a good movie. It's just not a great Bond movie. What do you think about that? Um, especially in light of your recent rewatching. So this was a movie that I kind of actively avoided. When I saw it in the theater for the first time, I decided, you know what? I don't really need to see this again anytime soon. Um, it didn't it didn't sit well with me at all. But then through the opportunity, well, before this, but, but uh, also the opportunity of doing the show um, and watching it again, um, I, I realized two very interesting and important details here. One is that watching it right after Casino Royale, and I don't mean the same night, but a week or two or three instead of three years apart right <laughs> makes a huge difference it makes a massive difference in watching this and the other thing is this because i do this with mission log as well and we had an episode recently on mission log where the same exact thing happened it was specifically the defector season three next gen mm-hmm. romulan defects comes over to the enterprise right and the first time i watched it all i was doing was saying okay this is interesting. He's a Romulan. He may be defecting or not. I sure hope we figure that out by the end of the show. <laughs> you know? And and they did. And they did. Okay. <laughs> Done. <laughs> There's my review. But then, because it's what we do, I went back and watched it a couple more times. You know, at least two, maybe three more times after that. And I realized that watching it again... I stopped watching it for the story and I started watching it for the scenes, each individual scene and seeing what the actor is doing, what's going on on the surface and what also is going on in that actor or that character's brain while they're in that scene. And I really appreciated everything in that so much more. And the same thing happened watching this. So I typically watch movies like this um, for the first time without and then with subtitles on. 
So I make sure that I'm not missing anything, no reference, no bit of dialogue, nothing. And by the second time watching this and really paying attention to the scenes and paying attention to the subtext of what Craig is doing and what uh, Olga, oh God, I'm about to call her Kuryakin, and that, that's not her name, uh, Olga Kurylenko as Camille, um, then I really got to appreciate the characters so much more and their journey and what they're doing scene by scene to flesh out what's happening to these characters. It made me appreciate this movie in a whole new way. So um, I, I am no longer on the bandwagon of quantum haters. I don't think it's as good as Casino Royale. I don't think it's as good as Skyfall. But I still feel like it's a necessary movie. And it's necessary to continue the story of Vesper and Yusuf and Mathis and Mr. White and what this does to build the character of Bond. So I will say to you, Matthew, I'm grateful for the opportunity that we got to do this because it made me go back and reappreciate this movie. You know, I don't think I've ever, I've never been a, a quantum hater. Mm. I've never been a quantum avoider or <laughs> any of those things. I, you know, I, I think I just recognize it for what it was always, which is that it is a lesser Bond movie compared to Casino Royale. But if I'm going to go back and compare it to almost any Roger Moore film, mm. I mean, if it's not The Spy Who Loved Me, then this is probably better than them. Mm-hmm. And and mainly because the what this movie is doing with you, the character of Bond, like you said, it really is continuing the story that we started in Casino Royale and growing this character, moving this character forward, actually telling us about the character of Bond, letting us get in his psyche and, and kind of think like Bond, see where he's coming from. And Craig is such a nuanced actor that like you were saying, you know, you, you watch this again and again and you can see the choices that he's making yeah, and what he's trying to say. And what's so great about Craig is he doesn't have to say a lot for you to get a lot. Um, I don't know if, you, if you've seen the movie Aloha. Oh, yeah. Right. At all. Right. Yeah. But there's that great scene between Bradley Cooper and John Krasinski mm. where John Krasinski doesn't talk very much. <laughs> but Bradley Cooper's like, he said a lot. <laughs> And this is what he said, but it's just by how the guys were looking at each other, right. you know, and it's, it's humorous, but that's kind of what Craig does. He doesn't have to say a lot, yeah. but everything about him is telling you the story of James Bond and where he is at this moment. Yeah, show, don't tell. I mean, that, that, that's the mark of a good exactly. actor and the mark of a good writer and the mark of a good director. Let the actors act. Just let them be in that scene and you'll, you'll get what you need to convey. You don't need to overwrite it. And for me, I think that's exactly what happened in this rewatch is that seeing what the actors were doing was covering up the mistakes in the storytelling because of the script problems or the choices they made some places that it's it's really the character story that is happening here. It is making this interesting. So like we've done, we, we've gone, we watched Casino Royale. We've come to Quantum of Solace. I say definitely go back and, and watch those two back to back. Heck, make it a double feature yeah. Yeah. one night. Sure. And kind of see the connection that they're making with the character. Because I 
if anything, I don't think you can fault this movie for the character story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's some of the other connecting pieces, I think, that maybe fall a little bit by the wayside because of the, the script issues that they had. Otherwise, the character story, this I, I can't wait now to watch Skyfall <laughs> to continue the story because yeah. I've seen Skyfall quite a few times <laughs> <laughs> because it's literally a movie I can watch anytime, any yeah. day, anywhere. Agreed. But... Wow, I just gave the away the review for Skyfall. Uh. Sorry, guys. Uh, Ruby, no more scotch for me. Thank you. I'm I'm gonna be good for now. Uh, <laughs> but this this I think um, I like this movie, and 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 I have to say that what's so interesting about this movie is that this is the most violent Bond that they've ever made. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not it's not Casino Royale as you would think of it, but this one has the most deaths, and it has some very violent deaths yeah. in it yeah uh especially like you said bond killing and choking the life out of somebody and not in the stylized way that we got in casino royale mm-hmm. but here he's watching the light fade from this guy's eyes right. this right. is much more visceral even i think than casino yeah yeah i agree i agree um it, it just if this movie had come out maybe even a year after Casino Royale came out, I, I probably would have been much more enthusiastic about it at the time. But being able to revisit it like we did, it, it just hit absolutely right. Um, and I was much more an active viewer this time than I was the last time. Something about sitting in a theater for the first time and just sort of soaking it in. This time I was studying the movie. And... Um, and it paid off. It, you know, it really benefited and changed my appreciation of this movie. Um, and, and I will say, by the way, that, you know, um, I don't know much about uh, hydrogen fuel cells, um, but I can say that they are definitely a bad fuel source for a hotel. Um, yeah, I don't care where you are, even yeah. if you are in the middle of the Yeah, room, yeah. Probably a bad idea. But if what you're trying to do is recreate the look of the final escape scene at the end of the black hole then you totally nail that by having exploding hydrogen fuel cells in your hotel with suspended uh, gantry walkways, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, and, and maybe that's maybe that's what they were maybe going for. Maybe it was. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, with <laughs> this movie, in light of, of the rewatch, how do you rate Quantum of, of Solace? And, you know, I think we did, I, I don't know what we did, but uh, with, I can't remember, honestly, we had so much going on with the 602 Club recently. But <laughs> let's do out of five, and you can do half stars or quarter stars. Okay. But to kind of put this on on a perspective that people could really understand, where would you put uh, Quantum, do you think? So here's the thing. it If you were to just watch this movie on its own, it... It would not hold up well, I don't think. You, you can't just go to somebody who really isn't familiar with James Bond and say, oh, here, watch this James Bond movie you haven't seen before. And, and it really wouldn't hold up well. As a double feature with Casino Royale, it's great viewing and there are great moments, but the writing is shaky, uh, clearly. I, I think your enjoyment of this movie solely has to do with um, your participation in Casino Royale and how much you are going to um, 
invest in, in your appreciation and experience of this movie. Like I said, my own experience of just letting the movie wash over me at the first time really didn't work out. Second time around, third time around, really had great payoff. Um, so the third time's the charm. Third time was the charm. Third time was the charm <laughs> after sticking Casino Royale in there as well. That that was the critical part. Um, so I'm going to give this, I'm going to give this three, yeah, I'm going to give it three Q pins, the little uh, quantum pins out of five. And, you know, if you catch me in the right mood, I might even round up to three and a half. But right now I'm just going to go with a solid three. You know, I am really right there with you. You know, I think this is an above average Bond film Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of Bond films that are below average. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't Mm -hmm. think I need to mention The View to Kill or (laughs) Octopussy or, you know, um, even The Man with the Golden Gun, unfortunately, not a great real good story any uh, yeah mm-hmm. there's uh, there's so many unfortunately that most of them come from the Roger Moore era yeah. and uh but this film like you said when you're watching it back to back with Casino Royale and and honestly it's kind of meant to be watched like that you know this isn't a standalone bond film we talked about that it is a direct sequel so you they are expecting that you have seen that Taking on its own merits, I, I I would fall directly to say that this is a three and a half fuel cell movie. Okay, um, it's uh, it doesn't quite get you know more than that half because there are those issues that we do have with the story. You know, it can't be a four fuel cell movie because that's more along the lines of a, a more excellent film yeah. where the storyline is really coming together. And this just doesn't have that. And it's not this film's fault. It's not even really the filmmaker's fault. It's it's just what happened. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe you don't like the direction or some other things like that. But I, I like what Mark Foster does here, personally. I, I like the direction of the film. Uh, I, I even like the song. Before we go, John, what do you think of... The, the song we've got Alicia Keys and Jack White from the White Stripes uh, doing the theme song does it work for you does it not work for you I, I think the Bond films have always struggled with um, do we go with good or do we go with popular and sometimes they luck out where good and popular meet up <laughs> and <Adele. laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and this is one of those cases where I hear the opening notes and I'm like oh, this is going to be neat. And, oh, Jack White is an interesting choice. And then about 20, 30 seconds into it, I'm ready for it to be over. Um, I don't think it's a great song. I think it's I think it's kind of an okay song. It's better than Madonna doing Die Another oh, Day. <laughs> oh, pretty much anything's better yeah, than Madonna yeah. and Die Another Day. Yeah, but, but I tell you what, you know, I like... Um, I certainly liked Garbage doing The World Is Not... Well, Shirley Manson specifically doing The World Is Not Enough better than I liked this, you know, with uh, Jack Black and Alicia Keys. It just... It's going to be... Because it's Jack Black, it's going to be a little more daring and a little more non-traditional. But I don't think the pieces came together here. What about you? 
I actually really like this Paul really? song, and I know that's completely unpopular opinion, yeah, but I mean, yeah. I've got it on my iPod. I enjoy when it comes mm-hmm. on. I think it is definitely homage to Live and Let Die mm-hmm. with the, the way that the pitch changes, the key changes, mm-hmm. uh, the tempo changes all in here are meant to reference that kind of kinetic feel. Yeah. And I think it fits the movie really well with just that unevenness of the song. Right. Actually fits the movie perfectly in the story they're trying to tell and there's something about it i like i understand that other people don't like the song completely and and it, again when it comes to the songs this is the most objective part of any bond <laughs> film right um i think except for saying that adele has sung the best bond oh. song i'm just gonna go out and say that yeah, so good uh so far i, I now I, I will i should say we have not heard sam smith's new song mm-hmm. yet mm-hmm. and it could be just as good mm-hmm. so but uh, yeah, uh, I, I enjoy the theme song to Die Another Day personally, which I'm interested to think to hear what people say on, on the Babel Conference. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, send us some contact. Yeah, trek.fm slash contact. Let us know what you think of the James Bond uh, theme song here for Quantum of Solace. And, and heck, send us your list of favorite Bond movies, too. I'd love to hear that as well. Two, uh, two parting things about this. One is that I'm going to share a link to you, and, and please share it with everybody um, at the 602 Club, uh, you know, uh, Facebook page, Babel Conference, everything. Um, it is a link to the Quantum of Solace proposed theme song, which I think Ooh. is one of the greatest things I've ever seen, and I'll uh, I'll send that to you for preview. And oh, can't wait! And and I think that you know after hearing your summation and hearing the words in my head of of my summation about where this fits, how it holds up, I'm going to say that this falls firmly in between, say, Thunderball and Diamonds Are Forever. So I, I think Thunderball is probably overall better written better produced but it bogs down and it's got some problems and it it, it doesn't you know thunderball is no goldfinger right okay no but but we were talking about the problem of sending bond to the desert and um i think diamonds are forever suffers a little bit when they get to the desert (laughs) you know except for maybe mr kid and mr wen depending on how you handle them but um you know this is certainly it doesn't fall to the depths of a movie like uh, Diamonds Are Forever. So if I had to stack it up against some previous uh, Bond movies, that's where I'll stick this one. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, go check out this movie. You know, Like we said, do a double feature. Yeah. Heck, do a triple feature. There you go. Uh, you know, yeah. Because we're going to be doing Skyfall soon. You know you want to rewatch Skyfall anyway. Uh, but uh, I, I think the progression is going to be really interesting as we get to Skyfall. and Maybe we can talk about legitimacy of quantum at that point and then of course who knows with specter how this movie might retroactively have even more legitimacy Mm -hmm. by what they do there so um i I think if they're smart they're that's definitely what they're going for and these people are smart yeah you know um the guys behind skyfall are also doing specter and they're no idiots (laughs) right right (laughs) I 
I'm beyond ecstatic that we got a chance to cover this because uh, I just love any excuse. And this is one of the things about the 602 Club. It gives me this amazing excuse to share with you my passions. But at the same time, it gives me a great excuse as, as if I need one to go watch a James Bond movie. <laughs> Uh, you know, or there something go, like that, yeah. or or go to the movies and see something new, or or watch through a TV show. Is our uncle conversation? John yeah. has got me watching the original. Oh, great! Man from Uncle show. Great. So, yeah. So those kind of things, like I even get inspired by the show. And we hope that that will happen for you. So again, I'd love to hear from you guys. Please go to trek.fm/contact. You can choose a show, choose the six hundred two club. Send us some feedback from you guys. Just what what you're thinking. I'd love to hear about from you guys that your favorite Bond movies, uh, your favorite Bond moments, favorite things or things you didn't like about Casino Royale or anything uh, we've talked about with Quantum. Uh, you can do also leave us a voicemail. Look in the sidebar on the show page. Go to speakpipe.com. And, of course, you can also go to the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group on Facebook. And you guys can share your thoughts with us directly. Uh, we love having you guys there. So just type Babel and then search field on Facebook. Or if you go to the website at trek.fm, just click discussion in the menu bar and it'll bring you right to that. Uh, it's our listeners only discussion group, as I said, so that it is a closed group. Just ask to join, we'll let you in, and you can join in the conversation. Like I said, don't forget that we're on iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. And we'd love to have your feedback on the show there with a star rating review because I'd love to be able to give you in our giveaway that $50 gift card in Eagle Moss USS Vengeance. Uh, and I really appreciate all the people that have gone on recently. Uh, had a wonderful review, and I just want to give them a shout-out. GrievousFan91 gave us a fantastic five-star review and written review. And one of the things they praised the show for was the fact that we do try to be very positive here and and even if we don't like something we try to find the positive aspects and and i think john and i tonight really <laughs> proving that point that trying to take quantum and and give you the most positive outlook we can on the film because it, it's not perfect and, and and it's something that we haven't shied away from but it's definitely a film that deserves your attention so i really appreciate you guys that you go on itunes give us this review Give us the star rating. It really helps us out greatly. Um, it makes us raise higher in the rankings. And the fact that you take the time out to do it, it just it makes me feel fantastic. Um, and we really appreciate it on the show. And we never take the fact that we have listeners like you guys for granted. You guys are the best. Uh, if you're not an Apple user, guys, you can find us everywhere. We're on TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from the website and grab the RSS link as well. Now without Ken Tripp and his support on Patreon, as an associate producer here of the 602 Club, we could not bring this show to you each week. We are a listener-supported network, and that means that we need you guys. You know, uh, the, the bandwidth for the shows, for the downloads, for the service space, for all of these things, for the production equipment we have and the software and all that, it's, it's an expensive thing, and we have such a passion for this. We want to continue to bring you the best content possible. Find out how you can be part of our team at patreon.com slash trekfm. You can support the network and help all of these shows coming, keep coming to you. We've got some great perks for you. You could be on the Patreon roundtable with Will Wynn and other fans and other people from around the network. We have early access to content, some exclusive content, and I swear 
We have some things we've been working on for a very long time. They're about to come out to our Patreon members soon. We really appreciate you guys. It's you guys that make this happen. So find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. John, I am so excited for you to have been back on the 602 Club. And what's most exciting is that we do have Spectre and Skyfall left. You know, oh, th- those yeah. are waiting in the wings. <laughs> wow. Can't wait. Can't wait. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm already just trying to plan out, okay, what theater am I going to go to? How many times am I going to see it? Am I going to get that little uh, steel black card where you can go back to the theater mm, unlimited times to see Spectre? Um, yeah, I'm excited, man. It's a good time to be a Bond fan. It really mm-hmm. is. Before we go, make sure that you let everybody know, obviously, where to find you and, and connect with you online and about Mission Log. Cool. Well, yeah, I'm very proud to be part of the Trek FM network that uh, Trek FM carries Mission Log. Uh, that's Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. And, um, you know, it, it is what the title says. We log every episode of Star Trek from the beginning, and we will keep on going until we get through every episode of every series and every movie. Uh, it's produced by Rod Roddenberry, and he had the the very interesting insight to, to put together a show that talks about morals, meanings, ethics, philosophy, and um, all that sounds very important and very serious, but we actually have a lot of fun. <laughs> so <Yeah>. check <laughs> us out at um, missionlogpodcast.com, and uh, we're on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter at missionlogpod. It's been the best thing to just be able to sit down and and talk Bond. And and like we've been doing, getting ready for Star Wars, it's been really fun to get the opportunity to really look critically at these Craig Bonds and talk through them and look through them and and see what they're doing as we move towards Spectre. And, man, what a great time, honestly, just to be a geek. I know, right? Jeez, just we're, we're getting... James Bond Spectre, a new Star Wars movie this year. Next year, Batman and Superman are going to be in a film together. Uh, I mean, things are happening for geeks that just we never thought possible. This is the golden age, and the 602 Club is here to celebrate all of it. From the good, the bad, the old, the new, the blue, something borrowed, something... (laughs) Yeah, everything. So... Really excited to, to have you guys along for the ride. You can find me at MattRushing02 on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram at MRushing. You can find me doing The Orb. I do that with Christopher Jones. We talk about Deep Space Nine. That's our Deep Space Nine only show. So exclusively that version of Star Trek. Now, um, if you need to, to, to find, to see the light of The Orb, if you need to see the light and know that Deep Space Nine is the best Star Trek show, <laughs> come on over because Chris and I are going to talk you into it. Uh, or at least just give you some reasons of why you should be thinking about that. You can find me on Literary Checks with Dan. We're talking about the books and the comics of Star Trek. We're also interviewing the authors. We just had an amazing interview with Kirsten Beyer uh, last week and talked about her new book, Atonement, there with Star Trek Voyager. Anybody who knows me knows that. I'm not a huge Voyager fan of the show, but I gotta say, Kirsten has made me such a fan with the books, and the interview is is brilliant. 
Uh, not because of anything we did, but because of Kirsten. So check that out. And you can also find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. I've got some movie reviews, book reviews, things like that. Just things that interest me a little bit more personal there. So make sure you get a chance to check that out. Well, really appreciate everyone being with us. And y'all come back now, you hear? <laughs>